Fay. So it's about halfway through chief year now, and I'm so excited to be an MFM, but I'm already forgetting how to do gynecology. Oh my gosh, Nick. You can't forget how to do gynecology because you haven't been GYN clinic chief yet. I know, but still, like, how am I going to keep track of all of these things? Like, you know, when do I get that ultrasound or what's the endometrial thickness that I need to be aware of? Like, I'm overwhelmed. Luckily for you, the OBG project has up-to-date guidelines for all of these things that you can make sure you have on your own personal bookshelf with your subscription of OBG First that I know you got for free because you're a fourth-year resident. Um, So you can go ahead and continue to be up-to-date on all of those things if you're up-to-date on all your readings on the OBG project. Phew. All right. Well, I'll be able to check that out, and you can check it out too. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the link in the sidebar and you too can get OBG first for absolutely free as a chief resident. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Lindsay Beffa. Dr. Beffa is an associate professor and clinical educator at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and Women and Infants Hospital and one of our lovely gynecology oncologists. Welcome, Dr. Beffa. Thank you for having me. All right, Dr. Beva. So what are we going to talk about today? So today we're going to talk about endometrial cancer. We'll go over a few things. I wanted to talk about the different classifications and types of endometrial cancer, and then we'll go through some risk factors, how to diagnose it, what the symptoms are, and then, of course, treatment and staging. That sounds excellent. So first of all, Dr. Beffo, what exactly is endometrial cancer and why do we care about it? So especially in this country, endometrial cancer is something that we should all care very much about. Um, But so we use the term endometrial cancer, kind of we throw that around really easily, but to break it down, endometrial cancer is just cancer of the lining or the epithelium of the uterus. And this accounts for more than 90% of uterine cancers. So if somebody says they have uterine cancer, you can almost assume that what they mean is endometrial cancer. The rest of the types of uterine cancer are from the mesenchymal, stromal, muscular layers, and those are kind of a whole different ballgame that we're not going to talk about today. We're going to focus on endometrial cancer. But specifically in this country, it's the fourth most common um, cancer that affects women, and we'll get to the risk factors and it'll make a little bit more sense, but it is definitely increasing in incidence, so everyone will come across this. And I heard too, Dr. Beva, that there's like different types of endometrial cancer? There are. So what you'll read most at this current point in time um, in textbooks and likely on an an exam per se are types 1 and type 2 endometrial cancers. So what that means, type 1 is kind of your bread and butter most common endometrial cancer. Those are the ones that are estrogen-driven They're typically low grade, so for us that means either grade one or grade two. Um, They have endometrioid histology, they're favorable prognosis, they're easy to treat, usually to present at an early stage. Um, And this is the majority, 80% of endometrial cancers are this type one. And then type two are high grade, so that either means a grade three endometrioid histology, also serous, clear cell carcinosarcoma histologies. 
These are typically more aggressive. They have a much poorer prognosis and luckily account for less percentage, about 10 to 20 percent of endometrial cancers. Um, Dr. Rafa, can you just break those grades down for us again? What does it mean to be grade one, two, and three? Absolutely. So this specifically is a little bit different in endometrial cancer. So we think about grade, the way we say this to patients, we think about grade as what do the cells look like under the microscope? How atypical, you know, do their nuclei look? Um, How many mitotic figures do they have? But When we talk about endometrial cancer, it's actually how much solid component is there because the endometrium is a glandular um, epithelium, so you would expect for it to have glands. But the grades in this type of cancer essentially mean how much solid component does it have. So grade one is less than 5% solid component. Grade two is 6 to 50% solid growth pattern. And grade three is over 50% of the solid growth pattern. So I feel like that is kind of a classic because it's unique to endometrial cancer, and that's a classic potential question that may come up. Got it. Thanks for that. Um, And I guess kind of jumping back into now those types of endometrial cancer you're describing earlier with, you know, are there risk factors, I guess, or things that we should be picking up in a history or physical examination that would like pique our attention for a type 1 cancer, let's say? Absolutely. So again, these are the type one, these are the estrogen driven cancers. So you have to think about both sources of exogenous estrogen as well as endogenous estrogen. So we're seeing less of this, but you still need to keep it on your radar if you're seeing patients in clinic. But so exogenous estrogen, if somebody has been receiving unopposed estrogen and hormone replacement therapy, if somebody is on tamoxifen, um, those are things that you should be thinking about. And then of course, endogenous estrogen, Kind of the classic, and this is a big reason why this is increasing incidence in the U.S., is that um, because of obesity and then any other kind of causes of chronic anovulation. So whether that's polycystic ovarian syndrome or the menopausal transition, um, and then, of course, less common, but again, classic potential test question, are the estrogen-secreting tumors. So classically, the granulosa cell tumor of the ovary, if a patient has abnormal uterine bleeding, you think about an endometrial cancer associated with that. Other things that are risk factors that are actually totally separate from exposure to estrogen is diabetes also increases the risk of a type 1 uterine cancer um, or endometrial cancer and nulliparity. Other things that are hot topics right now um, are genetic um, causes of type 1 endometrial cancers. So classically, this is Lynch syndrome. So again, those genetic mutations are in the DNA mismatch repair proteins, and that's MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. Um, So it's autosomal dominant disorder. And then the one that's less common but not to forget about is Cowden syndrome, and that's a P10 mutation. And again, that's an autosomal dominant pattern as well. So now that we've talked about these risk factors like this, these different genetic things that predispose you to having uh, endometrial cancer as well as risk factors like exposure to estrogen, are there protective factors? Definitely. So progestin-containing hormonal contraception kind of in any form is protective, as you can imagine. This makes, this makes sense. Um, and then other things that are not nearly as strongly protective but to think about and keep in mind are things like breastfeeding, increasing gravidity and parity. And then always, and some of you may remember from medical school, 
the whole idea of smoking is protective um, in endometrial cancer. So there is still, don't necessarily tell patients that, um, but there is still some protection in um, related to smoking with type 1 endometrial cancers, but only in the postmenopausal patients. And obviously, all the risks of smoking don't outweigh this benefit, um, but that is true. Hmm. Interesting. Right. Moving on from type 1, though, because again, type 1 accounts for 80% of these endometrial cancers. What about type 2, the sort of you know, less common endometrial cancers, though, that are higher grade? So those, you know, are not estrogen sensitive, not estrogen driven. Um, so those are a little bit trickier. Kind of some differences from type 1. Um, these patients typically are are older in age at diagnosis compared to type 1. The type 2 patients are typically thinner. Now, with all this being said, obesity is still a risk factor for type 2 endometrial cancers. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Buffa. Let's switch gears for a second and kind of talk about the clinical picture. So how would someone with endometrial cancer present in the clinic? So 75 to 90% of patients come in with some form of abnormal uterine bleeding. And the amount of bleeding does not correlate with the risk of endometrial cancer. So this always needs to be on your radar. So whether that's premenopausal abnormal uterine bleeding, obviously any postmenopausal bleeding, this needs to be really high on your differential. Um, but, you know, even patients who you've, have been worked up for abnormal uterine bleeding premenopausally and have not had a biopsy yet, if that persists, I highly encourage you and stress the importance of an endometrial biopsy or some type of tissue sampling. And then other ways that it might present or it might be picked up um, are as people may have an abnormal pap. So you may see atypical glandular cells on a pap, and that may be the first thing that kind of triggers you into the pathway of finding this. Or incidental finding on imaging, so whether that's CAT scan or MRI, but classically it's an ultrasound with a thickened endometrial stripe. And then, so say we do get some suspicion, whether based on risk factors and some presentation generally of abnormal uterine bleeding. Is the endometrial biopsy the way to go, or are there other things that we should think about in terms of cinching a diagnosis? Yeah, so, you know, the re reality is most of the time endometrial biopsy works very well, and it's a good kind of first start. But it's most reliable if at least half or 50% of the endometrium is involved. So if your endometrial biopsy is negative and they have persistent abnormal bleeding, don't just assume that it's correct. And kind of the next step or the gold standard would be a DNC or dilation and curatage. Um, and that's with or without, but I would say most of the time you're doing it with a hysteroscopy to evaluate and visualize the endometrium. So I think up to this point, you know, the general gynecologist could probably work up somebody who has endometrial cancer. But once that pathology comes back with endometrial cancer, we're probably sending them to you. So what would be the next step for treatment? Yeah, so treatment of endometrial cancer, as long as we in the clinic on an exam, you know, don't notice kind of things that make us concerned for obvious metastatic disease. But the treatment is um, a surgery. Um, so Endometrial cancer is surgically staged, which is different from some of our other cancers. But so what that means is most patients need a total hysterectomy, a bilateral salpingo oophorectomy, and some sort of lymph node evaluation. And this has kind of changed over the last few decades. Um, and so now we frequently do sentinel lymph node biopsy, where you're just taking a couple lymph nodes versus a full pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy. And as far as how and what route the total hysterectomy is, there's been actually multiple trials um, for endometrial cancer 
that have shown that minimally invasive approaches have, as you can imagine, lower rates of perioperative and postoperative complications versus an open procedure, and they don't. It doesn't negatively impact oncologic outcomes. So, minimally invasive surgery for endometrial cancer specifically is very appropriate. So we do surgery, and now we're moving on to actually staging, sort of the bane of everybody's existence when it comes to <laughs> tumor boards across the country, I'm sure. How do we go through staging, Dr. Beffa? So I think a good way to remember staging for endometrial cancer, so first just kind of lump your numbers, stages one through four, into one is confined to the uterus, and then if you separate that out, A and B, A is less than 50% myometrial invasion of the tumor, B is greater than 50%. Stage two can get a little bit tricky on nuanced test questions sometimes and the verbiage, so you have to pay particular attention. So stage two is cervical stromal involvement. So if you see something that says cervical glandular involvement, that does not count. So it's cervical stromal involvement that makes somebody a stage two. And then three is outside the uterus, and that can either be 3A, which is involving the uterine serosa or the adnexa. 3B is involving the vagina or the parametria. And 3C is pos essentially positive nodes. 3C1 is pelvic nodes. 3C2 is periortic nodes. And then 4 is metastatic disease. 4A is locally metastatic, so that means bladder mucosal involvement or bowel mucosal involvement. And 4B is distant mets. And that includes, so because this gets a little confusing sometimes when you confuse ovarian cancer staging and endometrial cancer staging. For endometrial cancer staging, intraperitoneal disease is a 4B. So, you know, it's been a while since I did gynonc and did my tumor boards, but I know that after you do your surgery, you'll sometimes do adjuvant treatment, so chemo or radiation. Can you also talk to us a little bit about when you would do one versus the other? Yeah, so it's also tricky in our the world of GYN oncology as well. There's lots of controversy. Um, but in general, most patients with stage one don't need any additional adjuvant treatment. Obviously, that's not 100% true for every patient, but talking in majorities, majority of patients in stage one, they need their surgery and that's it. When you're talking stage two and above, obviously we would be recommending adjuvant treatment. When you're talking about whether to do chemotherapy or radiation, there are many trials that go back and forth. And depending on if you talk to somebody who favors radiation or somebody favors chemotherapy, you could probably get them to argue one or the other. But in general, if we think about somebody who has obviously distant metastatic disease or positive nodal disease, most of the time, most people would recommend chemotherapy. And like many GYN oncology regimens, you would choose carboplatin and paclitaxel. Carbotaxel, that's your go-to for endometrial cancer if you have to choose a chemotherapy regimen. And then radiation, there's um, brachytherapy, which again just means radiation locally, so just basically a cylinder inside the vagina after a hysterectomy, which is the whole purpose of that is decrease the risk of recurrence at the top of the vagina, which is the most likely site that it would come back. Um, and so that is given for patients who are kind of this, we call it high intermediate risk, but they have some risk factors for recurrence, but not so many. And so again, it's, there's no cut and dry black and white um, decision on how to do that. And it's always a conversation and tumor board and people go back and forth. But that's one thing to keep in mind, brachytherapy. And then there's also whole pelvic radiation. And that's another potential option. Um, and you mentioned earlier, too, that for most endometrial cancer, it seems like prognosis is fairly favorable. 
Absolutely. So most patients are stage one if they have a type one. And again, because that's the majority, most of what I'm talking about relates to a type one cancer. Um, but so, you know, if they have a type one histology and they're stage one, incredibly favorable prognosis. When you're talking about type twos, that's a little, again, a little bit different ballgame. Their prognosis is not as favorable even when they're stage one. They frequently need adjuvant therapy even in stage one. So that's kind of where that separates between type one and type two. Dr. Buffo, what if you have a patient who comes to you and fortunate someone who's 28, 29, new diagnosis of endometrial cancer, and they've you know never had children and they really want to preserve their fertility? What are their options? Yeah. So we would talk to them you know, in our clinic, obviously, Kind of the standard of care would be a hysterectomy, bilateral subpingo-oophorectomy. For a patient who's 28 or 29, That there are a lot of complications, not only fertility, but also really premature menopause. So it's a big conversation we have with the patients. But if we feel like they're appropriate candidate, meaning clinically they're in early stage, they have one of the type 1 histologies, we often will do some imaging to ensure that we don't see any evidence of spread outside the uterus and that they, as best we can tell, they truly are in early stage, um, they have early stage disease. Then we can talk to them about progestin therapy. So there are studies that look at oral progestin therapy, and then we often now are, mo most people are using progestin IUDs as well to treat these patients. We'll follow them. We'll do frequent endometrial biopsies or DNCs. Um, hopefully, it will regress and they can get pregnant. Um, we often encourage them to see reproductive endocrinology, and that way things can be expedited, um, and that way they're not off their progestin therapy for any greater amount of time than absolutely necessary. And then most of the time, we recommend surgery after they've, they're finished com completing childbearing. And kind of, I guess another interesting question regarding this, you know, you said that a lot of these patients really, they require surgery for staging and presumptively as part of their treatment. But what about the patient that say, you know, is not able to tolerate surgery? They've got a lot of medical comorbidities or, you know, it's disease that is like plastering the pelvis and you're not going to be able to really debulk or operate on them. What's the treatment strategy there? Yeah. So, you know, depending on which of those patients it is. If you put a scope in and you see that there is widely metastatic disease and you can't debulk them, then most of the time those are the patients you're going to talk about, chemotherapy, radiation. But if you have patients who have lots of medical comorbidities or for other reasons we consider not a surgical candidate and they're inoperable, um, then the other way to treat this cancer without surgery essentially is radiation. And that would be whole pelvic radiation. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Buffa, for coming onto our podcast with us and um, chatting with us about endometrial cancer. So, Nick, let's go ahead and summarize. Absolutely. So, we started out talking about what is endometrial cancer as a sort of subtype, but the most common subtype of the uterine cancers. Again, these are cancers of the endometrial epithelial lining that make up over 90% of uterine cancers overall. These are increasing in incidence in the United States, often owing to some of the risk factors that we'll summarize a little bit later. We also talked about the fact that there are two types of endometrial cancers. Type 1 is our low-grade endometrioid histology, and these are usually associated with favorable prognosis. They're usually estrogen-driven, um, and they usually have precursor lesions like EIN. And 80% of endometrial cancers are type 1 cancers. 
Type 2 cancers tend to be more high-grade, meaning grade 3. They can be endometrioid, but they can also have serous clear cell or carcinosarcoma histologies. And these types of cancers tend to be more aggressive and have poorer prognosis. In terms of those types, again, type 1 cancers have particular risk factors, including exposure to estrogen, whether that be exogenous, such as with unopposed estrogen and HRT, or tamoxifen, and endogenous, such as obesity or states of chronic anovulation or estrogen-secreting tumors like a granulosa cell tumor. Independently from that, diabetes, nulliparity, and genetic syndromes such as the Lynch syndrome or Cowden syndrome can also be components that are risk factors for type 1 cancers. For type 2 cancers, these have some differences from the type 1 in that older patients, thinner patients, may be at higher risk for them. Obesity is still a risk factor, but less so than in type 1. Um, and again, these are not estrogen sensitive. Clinically, most of these patients, meaning 75 to 90% of patients with endometrial cancer, will present with some kind of abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, however, the amount of abnormal uterine bleeding does not correlate with the risk of endometrial cancer. In terms of findings, they'll no normally have a normal exam and labs. However, they will likely have some abnormality on some kind of imaging, most traditionally ultrasound. Diagnosis um, is always by getting tissue, whether that be an endometrial biopsy, which is probably the most common um, and is reliable if at least 50% of the endometrial surface is involved. But if symptoms are persistent or you have trouble getting sufficient tissue on endometrial biopsy, a DNC is required. Treatment of endometrial cancer includes surgery, and endometrial cancer is also surgically staged. So most patients will receive a total hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo-oophrectomy, and lymph node evaluation, whether through sentinel lymph nodes versus pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy. We also know that minimally invasive approaches tend to lead to lower rates of peri- and post-op complications compared to exploratory laparotomies and don't necessarily negatively impact oncologic outcomes. And quickly, staging of endometrial cancers includes stage 1, which is confined to the uterus. Stage 1A is less than 50% of the myometrial invasion. Stage 1B is greater than 50%. Stage 2 is cervical stromal involvement. Remember that glandular involvement doesn't count here. Stage 3 and A is serosa or adnexal involvement. B is vaginal or parametrial involvement. 3C is nodal involvement with C1 being pelvic nodes or C2 being periaortic nodes. And finally, stage 4, bladder or bowel mucosal involvement. Stage 4B includes distant metastases, which also does include intraperitoneal disease and inguinal lymph nodes. We did discuss adjuvant treatments, uh, though not in detail, because this is definitely beyond the scope of this podcast, but we do talk about the fact that if patients do need adjuvant treatment, they may either have chemotherapy or radiation in the form of brachytherapy or whole pelvic radiation. All right, Dr. Beffa, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, guys. This was great. Right, so once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, on Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or you can find us on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, where you can give us some love and support and we'll send you some swag. For any adjunct learning material, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Have a correction, concern, or want to send us some love in another way, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.